Jerry Hoffman was out of town. What was the award you got, Jerry? What was that called? Hall of Fame award? Was it? Fellowship. Huh? Fellowship. And to the AIA, which is the architects, what? American Architects? American Institute of Architects, which is a high honor. It would be like getting into the Hall of Fame in baseball. <laughs> really? I mean, it was a week-long affair. And the induction into the fellowship was at the National Cathedral of Washington, D.C. And it was a, each one of these, this was a big thing. This was not a little thing. This is a, this is a big thing. And uh, so that was a real honor. And so, well, congratulations. I think I want to congratulate Betty for pushing you. I know that wives are very important. George Smith tells me every week. Lynn, Lynn prepared a good lesson for the, for the week. And I delivered it well. So Anyway, let's take our, our Bibles and open up to Matthew chapter 10. And you will remember from last week, Jesus looks out upon the masses of people. And he describes them as sheep who do not have a shepherd. Which means that they are vulnerable. Uh, they are open for attack. Israel's leaders, her shepherds, should be leading Israel and protecting them and leading them in the way of the Lord, but her shepherds, her leaders, the priests, and her other leaders are only looking out for number one. They're looking out for themselves. So Jesus realizes that he needs more helpers to sort of rein in these lost sheep of Israel. And so he calls or chooses from among his multitudes of disciples, 12 men. And he gives them instructions regarding their provisions. They are to walk by faith and not depend on their own devices. So they're not to take a knapsack with them or they have extra food and all that. And now we come to verse 16 and he warns them about the dangers of their mission. Uh, it's always important when you're on a mission like this and you're going into enemy territory that you count the cost up front. Uh, once you face the enemy, uh, it's a little too late to start thinking what you're going to do. You better have a strategy up front. So he warns them about uh, the mission that they're going to be on. And uh, today we're celebrating Memorial Day. Today it's not the actual Memorial Day, but we're celebrating and reflecting upon the lives of people who died for this country. And uh, when a soldier uh, takes an oath and he's inducted into one of the armed forces, uh, he pledges his allegiance to this country uh, no matter what the cost. He does that up front. He doesn't know whether he'll see combat or not, but if he or she sees combat, they say, we will be true to our country uh, no matter what the cost. It's a life and death type of commitment. And so that's the pledge that they make. Now likewise, when Jesus sends the apostles out into enemy territory, he wants them to understand up front the cost involved because they're going into enemy territory. And death is going to stare them right in the face, as we will see. And uh, it's... <coughs> It's too late when you're faced with the option of living or dying. And to live, all you have to do is compromise your faith. 
it's too late to make the decision then. You need to make that decision way up front. No matter what the cost, I'm serving Christ, even if it costs me my life. Because what happens is that cowardice is, uh, is probably the worst thing that a soldier, whether it's a soldier of the cross or a soldier of the nation, a nation can do. And if you are a traitor, you can actually uh, be punished severely for being a traitor. So you don't want to be making that decision when you're faced with a life and death situation. You want to be making that decision up front. If you don't think that you can die for the cause, you shouldn't go out into the field facing the enemy. So what Jesus is doing is giving them these instructions on how to approach the assignment. Okay, so let's look at verse 16. Still with me on that? It's very important. All this is very important for us as believers. Verse 16, he says, Behold, I send you as sheep in the midst of wolves. Just as he's described Israel as sheep in the midst of wolves, now he describes his disciples in the same way. They are going to be open to attack. And the enemy is going to try to divide and scatter them. Okay? So he says the same thing of the apostles. You are like sheep going out among wolves. And the reason they're vulnerable is because they're not to take any weapons with them. Now when he's talking about wolves, he's not talking about the kind of cow when the full moon comes out, is he? He's talking about human beings who are out to destroy them. And uh, they're going to be sitting uh, ducks. They're going to be targets for the, uh, these evil people because they're going to be unarmed and he does not want them to lift up a sword and fight back. <coughs> Even if somebody comes and takes them by force, he says, don't pull out a sword. Don't get your staff and start hitting them over the head and fighting back. And we're going to see how he does this. So he says, I'm going to send you out to realize that you're on a life and death type mission among wolves. Therefore, verse 16, Here's what you need to do. Be as wise as serpents and harmless as doves. This is going to be your strategy in facing the enemy. You're to be cunning. You're to be shrewd. That deals with your mind. You don't go in here uh, naively. You're supposed to be sharp, cunning, shrewd, wise as serpents. But look what he says next. Harmless as doves. This has to do with the way you can handle the situation. Your motive. You don't say, well, if I face the enemy, they better watch out because I'm getting the first punch in. No, harmless as doves means that you're going to face your enemy uh, through nonviolence. So what we see is that the Jesus movement is a nonviolent movement. Not like the zealot movement, which is a violent movement. Remember Peter Zelotus, Peter the Zealot, one of the apostles, who actually thought they could defeat Rome through violence, through overcoming through violence. Jesus says, no, this, you're, you're to be harmless as doves. This is a nonviolent movement. So shrewdness without lifting a weapon. That's the combination you need when facing the enemy in the Christian mission. Now he identifies the enemies. Are you ready for this? Three enemies. Enemy number one. Three kinds of wolves, okay? Three kinds of enemies. Number one, religious wolves. Look at verse 17. Beware of men, they will deliver you up to the councils and scourge you in your synagogues. In the synagogues. These are religious wolves. This is what they're going to do. What are they going to do? 
take you before the councils, like the Sanhedrin and other religious councils, religious courts. In other words, they're going to arrest you. They're going to scourge you. They're going to flog you. Get ready for this. Where are they going to do it? In their synagogues. These are Jewish wolves. Religious wolves. Jewish wolves. Therefore, be on guard. Be ready. Pound. Be as wise as serpents when you go before these courts. Be as gentle as doves. Face the situation with nonviolence. So there's religious wolves. Now, second of all, second enemy. Political wolves. Governmental wolves. Look at verse 18. You will be brought before governors and kings for my name's sake. So, governors and kings, these are political or governmental wolves. Governor, Pontius Pilate. Roman political wolves. Kings, King Agrippa. Jewish political wolves who are collaborating with the Roman government. King Agrippa was appointed by the Roman government to serve and rein in the Jewish people, keep them, you know, uh, under control. He was a collaborator. So Jesus says, look, you're going to be not only brought before synods and the synagogues, you're going to be brought before political courts, governors, and kings. Here's why. It's going to be for my namesake. This is in the ministry of the gospel. But look what he says, what God's purpose is in all of this. As a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. Yes, you'll be out there preaching, you're going to be arrested, they're going to tell you to shut up, they're going to arrest you, you're going to be brought before a king or a governor. All of that is for the purpose of you witnessing to them. They're arresting you for breaking their laws, but guess what? what from God's perspective, you have been arrested that you may testify to them. So, Paul stands before King Agrippa, and guess what he does? Oh, King Agrippa, I know that you know the prophets and the law. And he starts preaching to King Agrippa, and he gives a testimony. He says, I was on the Damascus Road. He tells the whole story. And King Agrippa says, Paul, almost thou persuadest me to become a Christian. Paul said, I wish that not only was it almost, but that you did become a Christian. Paul saw every time he was put in jail and brought before a king, he saw this as an opportunity to share the gospel. He actually, at the end, by the end of the book of Romans, he has appealed his case all the way up to Caesar himself. Couldn't get any higher than Caesar. And Caesar had to sit there and listen to Paul, and Caesar would have to say something like this to the prosecuting attorney. And why do you have this man, a Roman citizen, here before me? What is this appeal all about? This is the Supreme Court of the Roman system, Caesar. And uh, the prosecutor would say, well, this man disturbs the laws of Rome, teaches about other gods, and Caesar would have to say to Paul, and what do you think? What's your, what's your defense? And Caesar, Paul would say, well, let me tell you what happened. One day I was on the road to Damascus. <laughs> and the scripture says that even those 
and Caesar's household were saved. And Roman soldiers were saved who guarded the Apostle Paul. So, Jesus turns this persecution into an opportunity to share the gospel and share the testimony. Now look at verse 19. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak. For it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. So he says, now when this happens to you, number one, don't worry about it. Don't be anxious. You say, well, I'm supposed to give a testimony. What am I going to say? Don't worry about it. Wait. Just wait. Find out what the king or the governor asks you. And in that situation, when you open your mouth, God will tell you what to say. All you have to do is trust Him. Don't be anxious. Don't form a big defense. You know how you always build up scenarios in your mind? Well, if this happens, here's what I'm going to do. And then guess what? You get there and nothing, everything that you wasted your time on doesn't happen. Just get there. See what the situation is. Don't worry. That's a negative. Don't worry. Don't be anxious. Just wait. God will give you what to say. Just trust God. Relax. Be calm in that situation. Okay? Now look what he says. How's that going to happen? How's that going to happen? You'll be told what to say. Verse 20. For it is not for you to speak in that situation, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Just trust God. Just stand up there and the words will be put in your mouth. Does that take an act of faith? Because your life is on the line. I think I'd go out and hire, you know, the best lawyer in Texas. I get Leah Drake to defend me. You know, and I say, I, look, they got me up here before the court. I'm going before Judge so-and-so. You know, and they, I turn it over to them and trust them. Hey, he says, don't even do that in this situation. Just get up there, open your mouth, and God will fill it. It's absolute trust. This is supernatural speaking. Because this is a supernatural situation. You are giving your testimony. So we see we have these religious wolves. We see we have these governmental wolves. And now we're going to see a third enemy. Family wolves. Okay, look at the family wolves. Verse 21. Now, brother will deliver up brother to death. And father, a father is a child. And children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. This shows us that uh, most likely, somewhere along the line, the apostles uh, had some family difficulties when it came to their mission of serving Christ. There was probably family members who were on the home front who were very upset over this. And uh, we do know that uh, throughout the scriptures that family members are angered when their sons and daughters and brothers and sisters, not just go into the ministry, they go into an itinerant ministry where they're going to be away all the time. In fact, uh, it happened with Jesus. Remember when Jesus healed the guy who was taken down through the roof? His family, his mother and James and his brothers and his sisters came and they said, get him out of here! What's he gone crazy? And 
They grabbed him and they wanted to take him home and pat him on the back and say, oh, you'll be better in a couple of weeks. And uh, there's problems on the home front oftentimes. And remember, Matthew's writing this to an audience who's reading his gospel 50 years after these events take place. And this is an encouragement to them. Yeah, family members may turn against you. Remember, Matthew's audience uh, are having a difficult time because they're rubbing shoulders with Gentiles, they're ministering, their family members, Jewish family members are very upset, and this is to be uh, a word for them. You can expect this. And some will turn you right over to the authorities. So, if you don't think this is happening, martyrdom is happening every day. There are people dying every day for the faith right now. In fact, in the hour that this class meets, 300 people will die for the sake of Jesus Christ. 300. That's over 100,000 people a year are martyred for the faith in 2012. That's uh, 15 an hour. 300 a day, 15 an hour. You say, well, where does this happen? Where do parents turn their kids over who become Christians? Where do uh, relatives uh, turn their kin into the authority? How about in Muslim countries? How about in communist countries? How about in Hindu countries? There are people dying for their faith today, and their family members, in many cases, are the ones that are turning them in. And Jesus says, uh, this is going to happen. Now this, you don't have to turn there, but just mark next to that verse, verse 20, um, Micah 7, uh, Micah 7, 5 through 7. Micah 7, 5 through 7. This is a prophecy. The prophet Micah said that Israel uh, would have problems and there would be family members turning against family members one day. Okay. So we see that. Now look at verse 22. We have sort of a summary statement. And you'll be hated by all. All of whom? Well, probably all those categories. All kinds of people. Verse 22. You'll be hated by all kinds of people. Again, for my name's sake, for the gospel. But he who endures to the end. End of what? End of your life. See, what the verse, end of verse 21 talks about? Death. He who endures to the end will be saved or delivered. Now, when you see the word saved there, I don't want you to think of it theologically. We always think of it in theological terms. He's saying the word saved simply means delivered. Okay? And what he's saying is, if you remain faithful to the name of Christ, even to the point of dying, you'll be delivered. Well, how can you be delivered if you just been put to death? You usually think of being delivered prior to death. He's saying if you remain faithful to death, you'll be delivered. How can you be delivered once you've died? How was Jesus delivered once he died? When Jesus was brought before a governor and before King Herod, did he beg for his life? No, I'm free. I don't want to die. Did he say that? He didn't want to die, but he didn't cower down. And guess what? They put him to death. Did God deliver him? Three days later, he raised him from the dead. He'll deliver you too. He delivered the martyrs from their death. Nero put a lot of Christians to death. Domitian, who was the 
Caesar, at the time this is written, has put a lot of people to death. He delivers us the same way he delivered all the other martyrs. That's the promise that we have is resurrection. Now, that doesn't mean we seek martyrdom. <laughs> we don't go out hunting for it. In fact, it's just the opposite. And when you look at the next verse, it's very interesting. Look what it says in verse 23. When they persecute you in this city, guess what you're to do? Run away. <laughs> Flee to the next city. See, that's our, that's our strategy. Our strategy is to be what? Wise as serpents, cunning as serpents. So, guess what? If the persecution comes, you don't say, Oh, yeah! yeah. Come on! Let's see what you can do. God will deliver me. Come on! Now throw me in jail. See what? No. When you see it happening, guess what you're to do? Flee. You have a choice. You can fight or you can flee. And what we should do is we should flee without compromise. Without compromising our faith. Okay. Did Paul ever flee? Yeah, sometimes they actually put him down in a basket over the city wall to get him out of there. They would take him at night and get him out. Did Jesus ever flee? Scripture says Jesus slipped through their hands and he was doing all these gyrations to get out of there. So what we're to do is we're not to be hunting for martyrdom. They may catch us and we may be thrown in prison. We may even be put to death. Maybe flogged, may even put us to death. But we shouldn't be hunting for it. We should flee. So that's what he says. 23, when they persecute you in this city, flee to another. And when you get to the other, guess what you do? Preach the gospel. You don't say, glad I got out of there. I'll never do this again. <laughs> I'm out of this preaching business. No, you don't do that. For assuredly I say to you, in verse 23, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Here is a word of assurance. You won't get through all the cities before the Son of Man comes. What in the world does that mean? You're not going to get through the cities before the Son of Man comes. One of the most confusing verses in all the Gospels. And uh, when you try to figure it out and say, what does this mean? We come up with all kinds of theories. <clears throat> Albert Schweitzer, the great uh, missionary doctor, said that Jesus was saying that before you finish your mission, the kingdom of God is going to come right on earth. And uh, the Son of Man talked up in the Old Testament is going to come and set up the kingdom of God on earth and there's going to be universal peace worldwide. And it didn't happen, Schweitzer says. Albert Schweitzer says, and it didn't happen. It was a great disappointment in Christianity. And so the disciples had to give up that mission of believing the kingdom was coming and they formed the church. That's what he writes in his famous book, The Quest for the Historical Jesus, one of the most important books of the 20th century. Uh, evangelicals think that's wrong. Jesus didn't make a mistake here. So Schweitzer said Jesus thought the kingdom was coming on earth, there'd be universal peace. It didn't happen. He was fooled. He was mistaken. But we don't accept that. <clears throat> Another one is that... Uh, when Jesus says this in verse 22, verse 23, uh, you will have not gone through the cities of Jerusalem before the Son of Man comes, he could simply be using the word Son of Man 
as a replacement for the word I. And Jesus does that a lot of times in the gospel. Instead of saying I, he'll just say son of man. So he could say, you won't get through all the cities until I come. I'm going to catch up with you. Your mission, before you finish your mission, guess what? I'm going to come and catch up with you. Now, you might say, man, that doesn't sound too good, but listen to this. Just listen. Listen to these words. After these things, Jesus appointed 70 others also. And he sent them out two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. Let me read that to you again. He sent them out into every city and place where he was about to go. So in other words, they were like his advanced team. They were to go out and preach the gospel, get ready, set the thing up, and he'd come in, and then they'd go to the next city. So that was, by the way, in Luke chapter 10 and verse 1. So we see that that's a possibility. Maybe that's what he was talking about. Now there's a third possibility. Listen to what he says again. I want to read that verse to you again in uh, Matthew 10, 23. I say you will not have gone through the cities of Jerusalem or Israel before, look at this phrase, the Son of Man comes. Before the Son of Man comes. Now, some people think that is a reference to Daniel chapter 7. Okay, so I want you to turn there. I want you to look at this. There's no way that we know the exact answer. You'll find uh, the major prophets, Isaiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. You'll find Daniel there. Go to Daniel chapter 7. You won't make it through the cities until the Son of Man comes. Okay? Come. Okay. And when you get to Daniel 7, look at verse 13. Daniel has a vision. He has a vision of these Four major kingdoms that fall, and then God sets up his kingdom. Look what it says in verse 13. Daniel 7 and verse 13. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming, coming with the clouds of heaven. Probably a reference to angels. Where does he come? He came to whom? The Ancient of Days. The Ancient of Days. Which is heaven. And where heaven is. Where God is. And they brought him near before him. Then to him, the Son of Man, was given a dominion and a glory and a kingdom. That all the peoples and nations and languages should serve him and his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. So, if Jesus is quoting this verse, you won't go through all the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes, where does the Son of Man go to? When he comes, where does he go to? What did Daniel 7 say? He comes to what? The Ancient of Days, he goes to heaven, and there he's given a kingdom. Within a year of this event, right here in Matthew 10, Jesus will die, he'll be resurrected, and he will, guess what? Ascend, and he'll come before the Ancient of Days, and God gives him a kingdom, he sets him on the throne, and he rules over the kingdom. 
So maybe Jesus is referring to that. So look at that in Matthew 10. Look what it says. Matthew 10, 23. I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes, which would be comes before the Ancient of Days, sits on his throne, gives his opinion. Could be that. We just don't know. It's just one of those verses where there's no absolute answer. So we're not sure. But I know one thing. The Son of Man comes, whatever that means. Happens before they get through all the cities of Israel and preach the gospel to the Jews. Okay? Now, when Matthew writes this in 85 AD, have all the Jews in the world been reached? No. So they still have this mission that they must be on, which is to reach the Jewish people. So we're not sure what that verse means. I have worked on that verse and tried to figure it out, and I'm just giving you some options there. And we just don't know. All we know is they have a mission that must be fulfilled, and it will not be fulfilled before the Son of Man comes. Maybe it means Jesus catches up with them, or he goes to heaven. We're just not sure. Now look at verse 24. That should be refreshing to you that I said I didn't know that. Okay, now. A disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. That's an axiom. That's a truism. No, no one is above the master. No one is above the rabbi or the teacher. Verse 25. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. You should emulate your teacher. That's what you are. You are a learner. A servant should be like his master. He should know his master's mind and do what his master wants even before he asks. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? In other words, if they called me an agent of the devil, guess what they're going to do to you? They're going to call you an agent of the devil and they're going to take care of you worse than they take care of me. So you need to handle this thing with shrewdness, cunning, and in a nonviolent manner. So in light of that, listing the dangers, explaining the cost up front, okay, we have this application. So let's look at the application. Let's look at verse 26. Therefore, in light of everything I've said, which is not a very nice scenario, do not fear them. Do not fear them. So what are you to do? Don't fear them. So you see the word fear there. It's used three times. Look at verse 28. Do not fear. Look at verse 31. Do not fear, therefore. What do you think this section between verses 26 and the end of there is about? Yeah, about not fearing. Not to fear. Okay? Don't be afraid. Now, his first one was don't be worried. Don't be anxious. What, the, what happens when they bring you before the courts? Don't worry. Don't be anxious. And guess what? And don't fear. Two things. Two major instructions. Practical instructions. Let's look at the fear number one. Verse 26. Therefore, do not fear them. That's the religious, political, family enemies. For there is nothing 
that will not be revealed and there will be nothing that is hidden that will not be known. The enemy's secret plots against you, their strategies which they hold in smoke-filled rooms, their plots against the kingdom of God, against Jesus, against the apostles, their secret plots, will be revealed. Their lying strategies. Say, oh, if we just get some false witnesses, we can get this guy arrested. They're conniving. All that will be exposed. It's going to be exposed, maybe not when it's happening, but it's going to be exposed on the day of judgment. In other words, they may put you to death and it looks like they won, but guess what? One day, it's going to be exposed on the day of judgment. In other words, justice is going to, is going to uh, be the result of all of this. In the end, they're going to be judged guilty. In the end, you're going to be vindicated. At the end of the age. Look, this is, if you don't believe in the judgment, then you think illogically. Because there are a lot of people in this world that get away with things. They never face judgment in this lifetime. They rape somebody, they kidnap somebody, they kill somebody. Hitler killed six million Jews. And he died, and you're going to die. That doesn't seem fair, does it? But guess what? One day, the Adolf Hitlers of this world are going to stand before the throne of God and they're going to be judged. And every plot, every lie, every secret thing that they came up is going to be revealed right there. And they're going to be judged. So although you may escape judgment in this lifetime, one day you're going to stand before God and you're going to be judged. All those hidden things that they have done and gotten away with in this lifetime will one day be exposed and justice will be done. By contrast, look at verse 27. Whatever I tell you in the dark. Now Jesus is talking to them privately. This is something that's being done, in a sense, secretly, behind closed doors. Whatever I tell you in the dark, I want you to speak it in the light. And what you hear in the ear, preach it from the housetops. In other words, yes, we have strategies on how to reach people with the gospel. We get together and we have strategy meetings, private meetings with believers. But then we go out and guess what we do? We make the announcement public. Go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is born, as the song says. He uses the word mountain, uh, housetop. Speak it from the housetop because that's where public announcements were made. If you wanted to make a public announcement in the city, you'd climb up on a house roof, and you'd stand there and you'd make a public announcement. Here ye, a message from the governor. And so he says, you're to proclaim this. Whatever you're to do, you do it in public. Remember the old drive-in uh, movie theater churches that were planted? The preacher get up on the roof of the concession stand, and he could preach to the whole audience, you know, in the drive-in theater. Those of you remember what a drive-in theater is? <laughs> <coughs> So what we have is, he says, don't be afraid. Hey, yes, we're developing a private strategy. We're developing a strategy behind closed doors. But then guess what I want you to do? Go out and say it publicly and don't be afraid. Whereas evil people, they plot things secretly in the smoke-filled rooms. And then guess what they do? They go out there and secretly they pull it off of them and they'll never get caught. 
See, that's the opposite of us. We have a public gospel. We take the gospel public. public. Now look at the second time fear is mentioned, verse 28. And do not fear those who can kill the body, but not kill the soul. And what he's saying is simply, don't fear man. Just This is just a, sort of a, a, a saying. And what he's saying is, don't fear man. Don't, don't allow fear to paralyze you from preaching the gospel publicly. But rather fear him who's able to destroy, destroy both soul and body and health. That simply means fear God. He's the only one that you should fear. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You're to be as wise as a serpent. First thing you're to do is just to fear God and don't fear man. Okay. Now look at verse 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? The answer is yes, they're sold two for a penny. Two for a penny. That was the least expensive living thing you could buy in the ancient world. A sparrow. Two for, for a penny. Remember penny candy? Sparrows, you get two for a penny. And you got meat. This is, this is what the poorest of the poor people ate. They ate sparrows. Pigeons, whatever you want to call them. So, this was the cheapest thing, and guess what it says? Aren't sparrows sold two for a copper coin of penny? The answer is yes. And not one of them falls to the ground apart from my Father's will. Uh, God not only knows when the least of His creatures dies, God not only knows when the least of His creatures dies, what does it say there? It doesn't happen apart from the Father's what? Will. The sparrow doesn't die not only without God's knowledge, it doesn't die without God's will. How about you? Do you think you die without God's will? you think when we die it's a mistake? I was listening to a radio program at 6 o'clock this morning, and I come to die my radio alarm set, and it comes on, this guy had lost his child. And it was a horrible thing, this man, a woman lost her child. And he is now angry against God, and his wife is angry against God. They don't know, know, know whether there's God or not. And I understand that, but if he would have read this, we would have seen this, even though the hurt is terrible. It doesn't happen apart from God's will, not even the least of his creatures. Look at verse 30, but the very hairs on your head are numbered. God knows about every little detail of your life. So don't worry about it. God's not going to allow you to fall either or die without it being His will. There's a time to live and there is a time to die. Do not be... Do not fear, therefore. Third time the word fear is used. You are more valuable than even a dozen sparrows. <laughs> You're more valuable than many sparrows. He watches over you, he cares for you, and yes, you will die, and yes, he will mourn, and yes, your family will mourn if you're out on the mission field and you're doing this, but guess what? It's all in God's hands. And that's the bottom line. Your life, no one can take your life, and you will not take your last breath until God alone. That means you're going to live as long as God wants you to live. And when you die, guess what? You're going to die on God's timetable. And yes, it's going to hurt because 
People are going to miss you, and you're not going to see them. But this should give us an assurance that God's in control. And if you have a sickness, and I don't care what a doctor said to you, I don't care what anyone said to you, they don't have the final word God does. And can you imagine going into enemy territory like this, knowing that you really could be put to death at any moment. It's not like just the disease. You could be put to death at any moment. And he says three times, don't fear, God is in control. So look at the bottom line. Therefore, verse 32, whoever confesses me before men, meaning in the public or the courtroom or whatever the situation is, doesn't cower back, him I will confess before my Father who is in heaven. So just keep your pledge of allegiance to the Lamb. Just like a soldier does when he pledges his allegiance to the country. And don't cave in when the pressure is put on you and there's a threat of death. Don't fear him that can destroy your body. Remember your baptismal vows. When you were buried with Christ, you said, I'm dead with Christ. My life is over anyway. My life is totally in his hand. I was raised. I'm alive in Christ. And my life is his on this earth until he's finished with it. And then he says this, verse 33, But whoever denies me before men, in other words, when the pressure gets so difficult that you want to cave in and you want to become a traitor to the cause, you want to abandon your post, you want to switch your allegiance, from the kingdom of God to the kingdoms of this world, out of fear for men, out of fear for your life. Instead of fearing God, whoever denies me before men under those circumstances, him will I deny before my Father who is in heaven. So the bottom line is you're with Christ all the way or you're not with Christ. There's no middle ground. Either you're for him or against him. And guess what? He's for you or he's against you. And so that is the story that we have. So um, either Christ is going to speak a word on your behalf or he's not going to speak a word on your behalf. So martyrdom uh, was a real possibility for these first Christians, especially the twelve. He's warning these twelve. One of these twelve caved in. Judas Iscariot, he thinks this whole movement's going to fall apart and Rome's going to come down on him and all are going to be dead. He caves in. One caves in. The other remains faithful. Jesus was put to death. The remaining 11 are smart. They flee. <laughs> they follow the instructions. They get out of there. They go hide in some room <clears throat> until it's safe to come out again. The Holy Spirit comes upon them. Uh, but in the end, the majority are going to die for their faith. Every one of these guys, maybe John, John lives to be 90, but every one of these guys died for their faith. They all end up martyrs, just like Jesus warned. But you know what? They counted the cost up front, all except one. And uh, they died on God's timetable. So, this Memorial Day, we need to be thinking not only of soldiers who pledge their allegiance for their, to their country and kept that pledge. But we need to think about those who died for the kingdom of God and kept their pledge of allegiance to the Lamb. Because they counted the cost up front. They paid the ultimate price.
Next week we'll pick up at verse 34 and we'll finish the chapter. Lord, we thank you for this word. It, it shows us the cost uh, of serving you wholeheartedly in every area of our lives. And uh, we are very fortunate in this country that we can serve you relatively free. Lord, there may come a day when even speaking your name will be a hate crime and we will be called upon to lay down our lives like brothers and sisters, 300 a day around the world are called upon to do. Help us to be faithful. Help us to count the cost up front. Help us not to be ashamed. Help us to fear you and not, not men. May we keep our pledge of allegiance to Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.